0: Blog Talk Radio Hello and welcome to Nice Girls Reading Naughty Books I'm your host, Bernadette Walsh And I'm so pleased to introduce my guest this evening, LaQuette. LaQuette is a romance author of bold, provocative love stories featuring multicultural characters. She often crafts emotionally epic, fantastical tales that are deeply pigmented by reality's paintbrush. A Brooklyn, New York native, LaQuette is a best-selling romance author, and her awards include the 2016 Author of the Year Golden Apple Award. Her titles include Under His Protection and The Queens of Kings. So welcome, Laquette, to Nice Girls Reading Naughty Books. How are you? Well, thank you for having me. I'm
1: well. I'm well. All things considered what's going on in the world, I have no complaints.
0: I know. It's been – we were talking about it before we joined. It's – you know, my heart goes out to everyone who's impacted, obviously, by the coronavirus. But even for those of us who are not directly impacted, in the sense that we're still healthy, it's just such a stressful time. You know, we're both yeah. we're both New Yorkers, so we are you know trapped in our houses, and it's you know, and with families and everything else, it really is a difficult time. So I appreciate you uh, you know joining me. Um, and so for a half hour, we can forget you know that we're trapped in our houses and maybe focus on what <laughs> we love, which is you know romance.
1: Absolutely, <laughs> the quest.
0: Yes, absolutely. So, Laquette, I I think we have two things in common that you may not be aware of. One, we are both originally Brooklyn girls. I was Brooklyn born as well. Yeah. And, (laughs) um, yeah, well, you know, I I was, uh, my dad was in Brooklyn. Um, I lived in Brooklyn until I was around 10. And then when I was an adult, my husband and I, um, I found him in Brooklyn. He was a Bay Ridge boy. And uh, we lived there for a (laughs) while. Then we moved. Moved out to Long Island, so um, which is kind of like Brooklyn anyway. But um, so yeah, so we're we're both Brooklyn girls, and the other thing we have in common. I was looking at some of your um, covers, and I saw a couple of them mm-hmm. had uh, redhead boys. So the ginger boys don't <laughs> often get a lot of love.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I I can't even that it was really that he was a gender boy you're talking about um his true strength which is the last book in the queens of kings series um that character came came out out of my head genuinely speaking because i had to make a phone call to paypal because there was some sort of um there was some sort of issue going on with my account at the time and to rectify it i had to call them, and the representative had the loveliest accent that i'd ever heard a man speak with, and I was so entranced by his voice um, and his speech that I could hardly stay focused on the business matter that I was calling him about, and at the end of the transaction, he was like, do you have any more questions? And I said, yes, I know this is going to sound really weird, but your accent is lovely. And I really just would like to know where, you know, where you hail from or where in the world you are right now, because it's not one that I readily recognize. Um, Because, you know, from New York, it's, you know, everyone from everywhere in the world is in New York. Um, Mm -hmm. So you, you get a feel of the different dialects and things of that nature. But I had not um, actually heard his, and he was from Ireland. He, had, he said to me, I am from the People's Republic of Ireland. And I was like, I need to write an Irish character. <laughs> like, I just need to, after listening to this man's dreamy voice for, you know, all of five minutes on the phone. So that's where Teague came from, uh, you know, the, the, my fantasizing about the nice person that helped me with my PayPal issue.
0: Oh wow! that's what Well, isn't it amazing what is,
1: what inspires you?
0: you know the PayPal inspired yeah. you. I actually live my husband my husband actually is from Dublin, so I get to hear that yeah. accent all the time.
1: <laughs> oh, you're so fortunate. It was so dreamy. it really was. I was mesmerized by it. I really was.
0: <laughs> oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. So listen, why don't we talk about um you know how long you've been writing and and what got you interested in romance?
1: Um, Well, I'm an academic. I've spent um, a good amount of years teaching um, English Lit and Comp and um, research writing, so there's all, you know, writing is always associated with the teaching, but um, I started writing romances probably um, like literally 20 years before I actually started publishing them. Um, I just knew that I was reading, like my first romance novel was um, The Devil's Price by Carol Mortimer, and it it completely, like, I was completely entrenched in it. I mean, I really could not put it down. I read it in one sitting, Uh, and I knew then that I wanted to do something like that, Um, but I couldn't find books that really featured women of color um, and didn't really feature a lot of Brooklynites. So um, I started kind of creating my own stories probably when I was about 18, 19. Um, And that kind of led me in the direction of studying literature and writing um, for many years after that. Uh, But I started publishing probably about six or seven years ago.
0: And so what made you decide to, how did you get the courage to say, well, I can start telling my own stories?
1: Um, I had just finished my master's degree, um, my, my thesis and my defense of my thesis. I was tired of writing stories or rather writing for specific reasons, like in academia, in terms of defending whatever it was I was arguing at that point. I didn't want to write what other people were telling me to write, which is what you do as a student, um, a graduate student. Um, and I wanted to just write something that was all about my id, that was all about consumption and just enjoyment. Um, And so I just sat down and I started writing this story that just kind of came out of nowhere. And um, my husband read the first half of it. And I think I didn't finish the, the second half because we got pregnant with our first son, shortly thereafter and so it kind of fell by the wayside and he kept saying to me you know I really think you should do something with this it was really good and I'm still you know I'm waiting on the second half of it to figure out what happens um, and my husband is not by any stretch of the imagination a person that reads romance but he was really into the book um, what I've written thus far and so I thought well if he you know being a computer tech guy who could care less about you know romance <laughs> um if he's that intrigued by it, then maybe people who actually like romance would find this interesting. And so I started, um, I made the decision to kind of, uh, to self-publish at that time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have a lot of knowledge about self-publishing, um, but putting that book out um, put me on the radar of a small press called Hot Ink Press, and um, I wrote for them for a couple of years. The first four books of the Queens of Kings series were uh, published through them. And um, from that, that led me to my journey to RWA and traditional publishing.
0: And so how many books have you published at this point?
1: Um, I've published 11 total. Uh, and I am currently working on three series for three separate publishers i don't know what i was thinking <laughs> at the same time <laughs> so i'll be writing for the next 2 years it's a good problem to have but you know it can be a little overwhelming when you think about
0: it that's amazing that is amazing and so um <laughs> it's yeah quite a journey you know now is is writing something that you do full time at this point
1: yes, or do you I am have a day job i'm writer no, wow. writing is my day job. This is what I do. um it's what I have seriously invested in uh and it's I take it so seriously because it is it is my profession. It is my job
0: Well, that's great. I mean, you are now living my fantasy life uh, because unfortunately, <laughs> I still have. <laughs> I still have my day job so um writing is something that I kind of fit in but um but it's amazing mm-hmm. that you that you made it your your full time thing and it sounds like you're you're having enormous success with it. Now maybe you can talk about how did, was it hard for you to transition from writing about um you know academic writing and then moving that into fiction writing. What were some of the hurdles you made? No cuz
1: I, I think I was always a fiction writer. Um I just didn't really know much about format and formula and, and how, um, how stories, like the format of stories and what they should look like in the printed word, in the printed form. Um, I knew I was a storyteller. I knew how to tell a story, but I didn't necessarily know how to use the skills that we use as writers to keep your audience um, actively engaged in the text. And so I started reading these books and I love them, but I kind of thought, well, I really need to know how to write, you know, professionally. Um, and so I decided to take up writing in college. So I had already been to school and I I had an associate at that point in respiratory therapy and I was practicing as a respiratory therapist, um, but I There was something so very serious about the the yearning to write that I went back to school and got a bachelor's degree in creative writing because I really wanted to understand how writing worked and, you know, what my job would really entail as a writer. Um, And I was fortunate because in that I think I learned a special appreciation for all forms of writing that I don't think I would necessarily have if I had come to writing um, just because I loved reading. Um, I, it, taught me, it taught me why I loved reading things and, again, how to make my readers love reading my books. Um, and so for me, and that's not the path that everyone needs to take. I don't think anyone needs that. I'm just saying I'm hard-headed, and for me, for it to penetrate into my head that's what I needed, um, and so doing that and putting that kind of energy because I'm I'm that person like if I really like something, I'm I go all at it. I I put a hundred percent into it because I really want to know the ins and outs of how something works in order for me to get a handle on it. Um, so after studying literature for a while. Um, I decided it was time to actually put all of the things that I had learned between my bachelor's and my master's degree um, and those two programs and put it into actual practice and put it out into the world. And I, I think that people, they dismiss romance as literature, but for me, I always saw romance as literature. So there was never any sort of divide for me and oh you're studying literature but you want to write romance to me it's all the same i mean it's different genres of course but good writing is good writing and it doesn't really matter um what genre you choose to write in
0: well that is that's that's i i think that is a a, a hurdle that a lot of romance writers over have to overcome right because mm-hmm. the the prejudice in a sense against romance writing but on some level, you are right good writing is good writing and if and if you don't have the good writing you you won't rise to the top so um yeah. i think you know I, I i i i i dip in and out of romance i think i started with romance because you know i always talked about writing and you know i was just it was it was a fantasy almost for me and i said well maybe someday mm-hmm. when i retire you know, I'll be able to sit on the beach and I don't know, write a romance novel. And when I was 40, I, you know, I hit 40. I was like, you know, I, uh, you know, I had, I ticked all the other boxes in my life, right. I got married, had a baby finally. Um, and, um, and I had my career, which I'm a lawyer. And, and that was a big focus for me for a long time. But I, you know, I turned 40 and I was like, there's something missing. It was that whole year. Mm-hmm. I was like, what is missing? And it was the creative side that I never allowed myself yes. the room to explore. And so what I did was, obviously, I had already kind of started down a road with a career, and, um, and so I, I just t- took little steps. You know, I started, mm-hmm. I bought myself a big, my husband actually bought me a computer, and I joined a local writing group. And I tried to um, teach myself in a lot of ways, because mm-hmm. although I had, you know, I did a lot of writing in my professional life as a lawyer, that's what you do is a lot of writing. It's very, yeah. very different that kind of legal writing is very, very different from putting it into fiction. And, and as you said before, you know, just being a reader, I think that, you know, look, I think you have to be a reader in order to be a writer, but Mm -hmm. that doesn't go all the way. It doesn't, it doesn't help you structure and all the things that as a reader, you almost don't notice because you're caught up in the story. You don't see, you know, all the, yeah, all the, the, the underpinnings of of the story. And so that's Mm -hmm. what I had to kind of learn. And so that's why, you know, romance writers of America. You know, look, it's a flawed institution in a lot of ways, but it has a. It, mm-hmm. it was it was my entry into writing because I couldn't take mm-hmm. the time, although I would love to. Right, I'd love to go back to school mm-hmm. and 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 study like you did, because that's you know I think that's a lot of people's ideal, but that just wasn't practical for me. So I had to do it you know a little bit at a time, and and that's that is you know my local writing group. They taught me you know in a very loving way. Yeah. You know, my first my first draft of my first book was horrendous, <laughs> and they taught me why it was horrendous, and they and they helped yeah. me, you know, get from from point A to point B. So, um, you know, so me, you, so you I actually think have. have oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Um, I was about to say, you know, you have this academic background, and you have actually contributed so much to other writers you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the the sessions that you run and some of the training and some of the themes you explore in that training.
1: Um, Well, right now I'm I'm, uh, teaching a lot of um, RWA chapters, what I've called my critical lens class. And it is really a course that really focuses on learning how to identify problematic content, problematic and harmful content in your work. And what I mean by that is basically writing things that are offensive to marginalized groups and communities. And um, especially when you are not from one of those communities, uh, it can be really easy, even without the intention, right? Even if your intent is to do something really good and to make your work inclusive, um, if you don't understand people's perspectives and why they have those perspectives and how your perspective may differ from theirs and why, if you don't understand that, then you can find yourself inadvertently doing some doing more harm than good. And so my course focuses on using literary criticism, um, which is basically – Identifying different schools of literary thought and applying them to um, to work and to a, to literature and using that to analyze not just what the text is on its face, but the things that we don't see that goes into a text. Things like the author voice, things that um, things like what influences the author had or what was going on in the in that person's um, life culturally, what was going on in, in their environment, whether, um, like, if we, you know, uh, or time period, you know, there are lots of things that happen historically that have a major impact on people individually. Uh, and, you know, if you don't recognize those things, you might not understand the depth of which this author is trying to bring those ideas and those experiences into their writing. And for you, it may just be something that you feel can be glossed over, but without understanding a perspective, you won't get the real value of the work. And so what I basically do is teach people through literary criticism to learn to value the perspective and the experience of marginalized communities and groups.
0: And do you see, at least in the groups that you've been working with, that more people are trying to, write from other perspectives and include more um, more of a multicultural, you know, cast of characters in their books?
1: I, I think that is definitely so. But it's not just multiculturalism. It's also identity. It's, you know, LGBTQ plus people. Mm-hmm. It's disabled people. It's all of these marginalized groups um, that people are aware of and understand that, have you know basic understanding that they should be putting them in their books because we exist in real life and if you're going to write what what we call realistic fiction, you should have you know elements of realistic realism into your your fiction. Um, and when you when you when you don't put those sorts of uh, communities in your book, when your book is extremely homogenous you are making a statement. You are making a choice because most of the world is not homogenous. Most of us live in a place or most of us, if not if we're not having direct contact with people from marginalized communities, we do know they exist, though. Um, and so to write a story that's, you know, placed in set in New York, but you have no people of color or no LGBTQ plus people or no disabled people, like New York has... Um, accessibility, like, built into a lot of its infrastructure. So even to get on the subway, there are certain stuff, not all of them, but the, many of the major stops have elevators for people who can't, you know, get up and down stairs that will take you from the street level to the, the subway platform. Um, so when you write a story about New York and you're writing it and you're not placing these people... From these groups and these communities into your story even in a secondary or tertiary fashion you are making a deliberate choice which is either because you have no interest in painting your picture that way or it's because you are afraid to do it because you're afraid you're going to do something wrong and so that's where my class sort of comes in i don't teach people you know things like skin color and hair texture, because that's really irrelevant and really has nothing to do with what makes a person who they are or what their identity, what the perspective of their identity is. Um, And also it doesn't really do anything because people of color have all sorts of textures and hair textures and skin colors. Um, So me trying to teach you that would be, you know, it wouldn't serve you at all. We're not a monolith. Um, we're not all the same. And so you can't write us all the same. But if you understand why, how inflicting your view on my life and my experience minimizes and diminishes my experience and my value and my, my contribution um, to the overall society and the overall genre, then once you understand that, then you'll start to kind of think, well, wow, like I didn't understand before why this was a problem, but now that I've kind of understood, you know, we discuss things like double consciousness. um, We we discuss um, all sorts of other theories that come into play um, when we're we're talking about um, literary criticism and those things really, the reason they're called schools of thought is because it is a collective of experiences you know ex- that are that have been sort of analyzed coming from different groups of people and it helps people who are not part of that group really to understand or objectively because you can't really subjectively understand what it is to be marginalized if you're not from a marginalized group yourself but it can sort of help you understand objectively why people might feel a certain way about a certain thing, right? Like we've, if you've never lost your parents, so to speak, right? Um, But a friend loses their parent, even though you don't really subjectively understand what it is to have lost your parent, you can, you have empathy. You understand that this is a really bad thing for this person in most cases. And I understand why they are hurt and upset and why, you know, why they're, they feel the way they feel about this person's loss. But for some reason, people aren't able to turn that empathy on when it comes to marginalized perspectives, not so readily. But if you think of it that way, it's it's really just about
0: understanding empathy. That's a great example. That really is a great example. And you don't see what you don't, you know, see, right? It sounds like maybe yes. sometimes people are blinded. And I think the other point you bring out, is which is, that people are maybe afraid. They're afraid to, to mm-hmm. step wrong and to, to do it wrong. So they're like, yes. I, I just won't do it at all. But you're right. It, it kind of, and I look, I'm, I'm guilty of it in my own writing. I kind of write from my own yes. perspective. A lot of my stories are, you know, about Irish America or people in Ireland, because that's what's most accessible to me. But it is something mm-hmm. I have thought about as well in terms of my next book. How do I expand that? Because it's, first of all, it makes for a richer reading experience for your readers, yes. and it also expands mm-hmm. the universe of people who want to read your book, you yes. know what I mean, if there's more that they can connect with. So um, so I it's think you're doing a great service. Norm-
1: it also normalizes the appearance of marginalized groups in books without without spotlighting them in a negative way, meaning we're not making their marginalization the focus, or we shouldn't be making their marginalization, the focus of their identity in the book, it should be that they are there, that Mm -hmm. they should be there, and it should be normal that they're there. Because if you, as a white author, write that sort of scenario, it makes it, it doesn't seem so strange when I do it, when I write that character, when I write books featuring people of color, because Readers have already seen it and mainstream. But if me not being part of the mainstream, if I am attempting to write this and mainstream is not at all including it into their work, then it looks like something different. It looks like something other. It looks like something that is not a part of the norm that we, the standard that we are used to having. So by having these, by creating diverse casts you are normalizing the existence of these people, of these groups inside of the romance world. And then romance readers will get used to seeing them and won't think that they're so strange when people from those communities actually write books about their own love stories.
0: That's a great point. That's a great point. And, and in the same way, so when you include multicultural characters in your own books, like the, the Irish boy who who inspired you from, <laughs> from, from PayPal, that, again, if people have seen that in other boy, other stories, that, you're right, it becomes more normalized. That's a, that's a great point. Mm-hmm. And, and like I said, I, I think you're doing a, a great service for other writers to mm-hmm. opening up their lens. Because, look, the writing process, the story comes to you as it comes to you, right? And it's only mm-hmm. when, you know, I think constant learning and constant exposure that you think, okay, I'm starting a new story. You know, where can I, maybe, maybe I would normally have my character look like X or be an X type of character. And then I, maybe I could consider them a Y character. You know what I mean? Like, so it's opening up mm-hmm. your, your lens. I guess one question I would ask you, and I, I'm, the reason why I'm asking is because I, I just finished a book by a fairly um, well known romance writer, women's fiction writer. And um, you could, I, you know, only because I'm kind of in the, Romance, the RWA community. You can see what with, mm. with this this concept of multicultural characters has been talked about, and I could see that this character, this writer, was trying to expand her normal universe. But I felt the way that she did it was a little jarring, because she had a <laughs> lot of her main character, and I'm not going to identify her because, like, first of all, I'm a big mm-hmm. fan girl, and 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 I think she was trying to do some good things, but I think maybe she could have done it in a different way. And I, I just wanted your, your thoughts, you know, her main characters were still, you know, white people, right. All the main characters, love mm-hmm. interests, the, the, the family, you know, they were all white characters, but she had a lot of multicultural, uh, you know, um, characters that were tertiary characters. Mm-hmm. But I felt like she didn't do a great job of, they were just kind of there. And like, you know, one of them was a neighbor who was, you know, Latin and was singing, you know, in the backyard or something. And Mm. I felt like it was jarring because she didn't interact with this neighbor. He could have been cut completely out of the character. And I was like, what are you trying to show? Like that your neighbor is Latin? Like, is that (laughs) what you're trying to show? And I mean, okay, but you didn't interact with him. You know what I mean? And then I just felt like the character, like, and then she was at a party and so there was, you know, an Indian family is a party. And then, you know, like it was kind of a lot, but I felt like I was like, if you're going to have these characters, they should be they in should the have story. Substance.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: See, um,
1: the problem with that is that you're, you're basically making cardboard cardboard cutouts of diverse people, and <laughs> putting them in your book <laughs> and expecting that to be enough but no it's not so I always use this analogy um, to help people understand how to really create a marginalized character um, and insert them into your story even when they're not the main character right so we get caught up in our main character and the whole book has to be about those two characters yes we know that right but we also, you know, we all for our main characters, we always have goal, motivation, and conflict. We always have a full arc, that emotional arc that this person has to, you know, these people have to go through. But they don't, oftentimes, especially when it comes to writing outside of their own experience, um, when they put these these marginalized people in these stories, they're not giving them a full arc. So they come off very shallow, very superficial. Um, a great way to think about how to do this is to watch um, Marvel's Captain America Civil War. And you're going to think it's strange, but I promise you it makes sense. Um, when you – this story, the protagonists in the story are Captain America and Iron Man, and they're having a clash, a difference of opinion that leads to the Avengers splitting up into two factions, two teams. Um, In all of that going on, we meet T'Challa, who at the time when we first meet him is the prince of Wakanda, and he is being doted on by his father, King T'Chaka. We meet him as a loving son who adores his father and who is also adored by his father. We... He is the jewel of his father's eye. And it's just a really sweet, tender moment we get to see him exchange with his father when we first meet him. Um, very shortly after we meet him, his father is killed. And he is moved from being the adoring prince. To he has to become king and is Black Panther, which is the protector of his country. And as the protector of his country, it now becomes his responsibility to get justice for their slain king. So we've moved him from this really, really, you know, the the this early meat cute sort of situation to giving him a start to the hero's journey. And mind you, he's not the hero. He's not the hero of this story because that's for Iron Man and Captain America. He's really a secondary character. He doesn't really have a whole lot of time on screen. But in the few scenes that he does have on screen, you get to see him moving to the completion of this arc. And by the end of the story, he's actually understood that, one, he was chasing the wrong villain, and that, two, what he thought he was seeking was justice, but it was in fact vengeance and that he can't allow vengeance to consume him because that is not the man that his father raised him to be. Um, And that is not the king, the type of king his people need. It sounds like so much, but it happens very quickly. And again, with very few scenes where he is the focus all the while, all of this other stuff is going on with Captain America and Iron Man and He's such a full character that by the time he gets his own movie in Black Panther, we feel like we know him already. We've seen where his beginning comes from and what his what his um, goal and his motivation has been, and we're ready to see what this new journey is that he's going to partake on. So when you are writing a character that is out of your experience, it's not enough just to put them in the story. You've got to give them a, an emotional arc. It doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to spotlight them. But your, your, your reader should be able to see emotionally what has changed about this character from when they first came onto the scene to when they're, you know, the, the end of the book.
0: And I think part of that as the, the writer's responsibility is to be get to – before you publish a book with, with characters that maybe you're not necessarily as comfortable writing, you have to get to the comfort level. And so that you're willing to yeah. put in the work to make them real characters. And I think a lot of that – and again, I'm going back to this book that I just read – was you can't make them all perfect either, right? Because then they're not a fully fleshed out character. You, so because you're afraid – You can't like, make them – yeah they you can't they, make they them, can't them all be perfect, perfect but yeah. they can't be
1: perfect people, but also the problem is I find that a lot of people are stalled or they they they're stuck because they have this idea in their heads of what marginalization is, so they want to write a black character, they have this idea in their heads of what of what blackness actually is and what black people are, and the truth of the matter is what makes you think you really can identify that, especially if you're not black yourself? How can you really say what it is to be a black person or an LGBTQ plus person or disabled person if you're not experiencing that? So what I tell people is stop trying to write a black character. Write a character who happens to be black. Write a fully fleshed out character and present them as whatever that marginalization is if you write a fully fleshed out character you know people are not looking for the things that you are signaling for blackness so to speak so when and that's the problem is a lot of people what they assign to race or or what um or attributes they assign to any culture or community they assign that because this is what the media, what the entertainment industry, what they've read, what they've heard, what they've seen on TV, this is what they know of a community. And so they repeat these same stereotypes in a book and think, but that's what I see on TV. That's what this is, right? This is the culture. And it's like, no, you saw a very a very curated oftentimes view of what that community's experiences are. So I think we need to, especially authors who are not part of a community, you need to stop coming up with your own ideas about what that community is. That community gets to define them themselves. You can't define them. Um, and if you can't define them, then you can't really – write what I call the struggle story, which is stories that are based and steeped only in that person's struggle, meaning the conflict is their identity. They are conflicted because of their identity. So if they are black, all of the bad things in their in their world are happening to them in the story because they are black. If they are gay, all the bad things that are happening to them are happening to them because they are gay. If they are disabled, all of the bad things that happen to them in the story are happening because of their disability. Um, conflict, identity, a conflict does not equal identity, and I think that becomes sort of an easy target for mm-hmm. non-marginalized authors to reach for when they want to tell a story featuring um, marginalized people. But you don't have to do that. Like there are other compelling stories other than the struggle of a community focus on the humanity of the community, not the struggle. Um, the struggle is part of their humanity, it's not the sum total of it. And I think if we get to that part where we're realizing that people are not their conflicts, um, um, you know, that identity is not something we should have to be conflicted about, um, we will move away from this, this ideology that the only compelling story featuring marginalized people is about their struggle.
0: Right. So I think, I, you know, I, I think it's all about, for, from the writer's perspective, um, educating yourself and, and you mm-hmm. know, again, I think um, moving out of your comfort zone and doing it in the best mm-hmm. way you possibly can. And I think that is really, you know, trying to, you know, think about and be very thoughtful about when you're adding those characters and, and like you said, Absolutely. try not to be you know, uh, stereotype, I mean, and I even see it like, you know, from, you know, I'm I'm from an Irish family, I'm married to an Irish man. And a lot of times, you know, there's also stereotypes about Irish people in the community, you know, from mm-hmm. the media that we're all, you know, I will see Patrick's Day, you know, stuff and we're a whole bunch of alcoholics. And so, um, you know, and so I sometimes react the same way when I, I read a book and there's an Irish character and I'm like, it's so like, for me, it just feels so false, right? It's hitting the wrong lines because somebody just took the very surface. What's without yeah. really knowing if you have an Irish character, like, especially like an Irish born character, it's very hard for an American, I think, to write, write an Irish born character in a oh, very absolutely. authentic way he, without so doing perfect. some research, yes. you know?
1: Just so you know, Teague is not Irish born.
0: <laughs> oh, no, no, Irish I wasn't ancestry. saying, I wasn't, I wasn't, um, no, I, I, no, 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 I wasn't, I wasn't picking on your character, but I'm just saying this is an example, like to kind of, I uh, yeah, just trying I to connect how, you, yeah. how, so, well, maybe we can turn a little bit more towards the specifics of your writing. So in terms of the heat level of your books, are they hot? Where are they on the, on the heat level?
1: My books are scorching. So if you are not, um, if you don't want to see sex on the page, don't pick up my books. They are filthy. They, <laughs> they are. <laughs> uh, every time I say that, I have a book called um, Betting the Enemy, and the book actually starts with the sex scene. And every time I say how filthy the book is, Joanna Shoop who she says to me, I love that book. I so love that book. (laughs) I know. We all love it, but it's filthy. It really
0: is. (laughs) So
1: if you, not everyone really wants to read, um, you know, explicit sex on the page, and I'm okay with that, right? I don't always read stories that only have explicit sex in them. But um, I'm just letting people know that if you're looking for heat, that's kind of one of the things that I do kind of well.
0: And you were able to do that right out of the the gate. That was your first book. You were able to do that. Um, yeah. Cause I think I, um, I write
1: sex from the perspective that it is natural and that there's no reason to be ashamed of it. So, and I also write from the perspective that my, my characters have healthy sexual appetites as well as, have no shame in their sexuality. So when they are engaged in physical intimacy with their partners, there's nothing to shy away from because this is something they both want. This is something um, that they're both willing to give their all for, uh, and they're both very invested in pleasuring each other. So um, it really becomes, an ex- and sex also in my books is also a physical representation of the intensity of the emotion shared between the characters. So the sex you see them having, you know, maybe in, in the earlier parts of the book is going to be different from sex that they're having toward the end of the book because the relationship is, is you know, evolved and hopefully deepened. And so it's going to be much less about the physical experience than it is the emotional exchange
0: and so that intensity does that does that also loop in with the fact that I think you incorporate romantic suspense? Are a lot of your books, romantic suspense, or just some of your titles. Well, uh, some of some of my
1: the Queens of King series is a romantic suspense series. Um, Betting the Enemy also has a bit of suspense attached to it. I don't really write true romantic suspense, so you know if people are really like looking for heavy mysteries, you're not going to find that in my books. Um, mm-hmm. But they're generally contemporaries, high heat contemporaries with, uh, you know, some suspense elements to them. Um, but even my even my, uh, I'm contracted for to write a rom com series for St. Martin's Press based on uh, three 40 year old, over 40 year old women who are divorced and finding love for the second time in their lives. And those books, the heat will be hot as well. So it's not necessarily because of the suspense element, it's more how I feel my characters have to interact and express themselves. Because I, I believe wholeheartedly that sex is a part of it's a natural part of expression for those of us who wish to express ourselves like that um and if that is the case then we can't write sex as if it's something dirty and when I say you know I call it filthy but I mean it in the best of ways and I say it with the biggest smile on my face if you could see me right now um but we can't a lot of the reason I feel romance has this really bad rap in terms of, um, you know, the sex that's depicted in our books is because the outside world really has this, this, I don't want to say puritanical, but really has this very conservative, narrow view of what sex and intimacy are and what, and the impact of it on certain people's lives. So, you know, if you're a person that's ace and sexual intimacy, physical sexual intimacy is not how you express your intimacy, then that doesn't necessarily that doesn't apply to you. But for people who are, then why should we be afraid to show that? And I think that's the problem with romance in and of itself in terms of how people view us from the outside because they're viewing it with this very conservative idea of sex being a bad thing and we need to, like, hide it from the rest of the world. And I don't think that that's the case. I don't think of sex as a bad thing. I think if sex is something you are interested in and something you are consenting to have and something you want to do, then you should be allowed to do it As much as you want, as long as whomever you're having sex with equally wants this, consents to it, and is game for whatever it is you two have been talking about, thinking about doing.
0: Right. And there's a place for people who want to read about that. You know, not Maybe. everyone wants to, as you said, it's it's not everyone's jam, right? But if you yeah, want to, not. there should be good quality love stories that have the higher heat level. And what's wrong with that? You know, if you're an adult, you should be able to read it. So, you should be able so to I, read those. If you're a responsible adult, you should be able to read those. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I'm impressed that you were able to go out of the gate. And the reason why I'm impressed is because that is an area of my writing that I've had, I've struggled with so much. My first book, was uh, a contemporary romance. It was called um, Gold Coast Wives. It was like really a chick lity kind of book. And my editor mm-hmm. at the time, I was with Lyrical Press. She said, look, this is a really great, and I see the story, I see the love story. She goes, but they've got to touch. This is a romance. They can't just like you know, talk on the phone. There has to be some contact. <laughs> and I finally, after, you know, being the uptight Irish Catholic girl that I am, I um I really struggled with it and was eventually able to kind of get there. And but I've actually only be able been able to write hotter stories in my paranormal romance. And I think part of it is because my characters are so unlike me that a lot of my own inhibitions mm-hmm. <laughs> I can put
1: to the side. So,
0: you know, but I enjoy I, know, I, 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 really, I
1: definitely I can understand that. I mean I don't necessarily think that um, all books need sex or all romances need sex. I I think that you can tell a really compelling story without sex in a book, but it is my preference when I am writing to express emotional intensity through the act of sex. Um, that is not something that I that needs to happen in every book. That is not something every author needs to do. That is not something that, Um, every book needs to have. And I've read, I've read um, romances that are sweet, that have no sex on them, in them. Um, And, and they're beautiful stories. But I think the, the issue is, is that we get kind of wrapped up in this idea of what is the, because storytelling can be sort of formulaic. And so we have these expectations of what ingredients make a story but I don't think that everyone needs to tell a story the exact same way, and I don't think every author needs to include sex in, in their books. I don't think every character needs to be all about the sex. I don't think every coupling or every pairing needs to be um, all about the sex. You can have an intimate, you can have an exchange of intimacy without uh, physicality. That is very true. But the books that I tend to write, the the way that my characters tend to express their emotions or their emotional connection is generally through sex in the book. And I just I for me it works. Um I don't need everybody else to do it and I'm not telling everybody else they have to do it but for me it Oh
0: works. yeah, no, no. And and that's what makes it interesting. Like I said, um, you're mm-hmm. right. There's, there's, especially in romance. There's so many different genres, and you can find something you like. And and sometimes you're mm-hmm. you're in the mood for a sweet romance, and sometimes you want something a little hotter. So so you're fit, yeah. fitting the bill with that. So so I think that's I, great. And, um... and like I said, I was a- able to eventually get <laughs> over it. I actually have written some hotter <laughs> books, um, but the first one was a real struggle. So anyway, so um, and Are and I want right? to tell you, Sex I
1: cannot. Go ahead.
0: No, no. I also want to tell you that. I absolutely love the name, the Queens of Kings. I thought that was like a really clever name. So I can't wait to check that out as well. I'm well, sorry. Um, I did drop you before. From,
1: people who are not from Brooklyn. Uh, if you're from Brooklyn, you kind of get it. Um, mm-hmm. But Brooklyn um, is the Brooklyn is the County of Kings. It's called Kings County. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you when you're when I say the queens of kings, I'm meaning women who are at the top of their field. You know they are literally dominating their professions, and they're from Brooklyn. Um, and so that is why that that uh, series was named the Queens of Kings because it's about three women in particular who, as I said, are professionally dominant, and they're from Brooklyn and. Through all of their professional, although their professional lives are very much set, their romantic lives are not lacking, but uncertain at that time because of the people that they're involved with.
0: Well, it sounds great. We're, I could, I wish I could talk for like another hour with you, Laquette, but we're actually <laughs> running a little bit out of time. Um, so maybe you could t- tell people where they can find you online, and also what some of your upcoming or more, more recent releases are.
1: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Laquette Writes, You can find me on Facebook at Laquette the Author. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Laquette. Excuse me, at La underscore Quette. Um, and my, I am writing a lot right now. So my latest release would probably be under his protection, which has. The rights have since been re- reverted to me, so that will be re-released very soon. Um, and then before that, uh, probably "Betting the Enemy," and I think that that's um, <laughs> that's an, a, a very unique entryway into my work. So if you're looking for the spicy stuff, if you really like a hot book, a hot little read, um, "Betting the Enemy" is definitely the way to go.
0: Well. And it sounds like there's a lot more great titles to come because sounds like you've been very busy. And I would hope that you yeah. would uh, let us know. Yeah, you sounds like you've been very busy, and so <laughs> being under quarantine is probably not the best time. Um, but um, I wish you good luck <laughs> Gotta with that. Got to get the work done. <laughs> yep. I actually, I, I don't know if you've seen those like little beams on Facebook where you know the mom is at the computer and the children are like tied up. That's <laughs> I can very much relate to that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, if only it were legal, right? If only yeah. it
0: were legal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we well, you know, we just have to get through it, and and that's what I tell my my husband, yeah. I was like, we just got have to get through the next week. We just have to get through. The, I can't think that this is going to go on for mm-hmm. more multiple weeks. Although I fear, of course, mm-hmm. that it will. But you know, we have to, and one and day we have at keep a time writing. is all you can do. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely, right. and we have to. Keep writing, keep writing. Well, anyway, thank you so much, LaQuette. and and if you can please let me know about your ne- next upcoming releases because I like to let people n- know on the Nice Girls Reading Naughty Books Facebook fan, fan page what people are what our prior guests oh, are up to. Oh, I so, certainly will, of course, of course. Yeah, and thank I thank you so and much for having me. I've
1: really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, no, I've enjoyed it as well. I, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been following you on Twitter, secretly stalking you, and I've really enjoyed um, your tweets. And I also, <laughs> you know, I, I saw your, your um, speech last year at the RWA conference. I didn't go, but I saw it online. So um, I was really, really thrilled that you agreed to this interview. So I, I really do appreciate oh, you thank joining you. me. And um, I hope we can chat again sometime. So really, best of luck. And Absolutely. please, please keep in touch. And so just wanted to let everyone know, um, because I am on quarantine, I've set up some really great interviews for the next few weeks. So hopefully keep people entertained with podcasts as they're um, kept inside. Also wanted to let you know about some of my books. Um, Cold Spring is um, free. And I'm going to keep that free for a while just as a little gift to people who are stuck inside. Also, my um, first book in my paranormal romance series, The Reluctant Witch, See Me, is available, and it's only 99 cents. So I'd appreciate if people would check that out. And um, covers and all buy links for all of my books are on my website, BernadetteWalsh.com. So thanks again for joining me. This is Bernadette Walsh of Nice Girls Reading Naughty Books, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.